Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Premier says Ontario is officially in the second wave, and it could be a lot worse than the first with increasing cases. Just how bad is it going to get? Well, we'll talk about that. The chair of Hamilton's LGBTQ community has been chastised by the Integrity Commissioner, suggesting that he resign. We'll talk with him about that. And a study published yesterday in the Canadian Medical Association found that inequities in premature deaths have increased between rich and poor in Canada. We'll talk with one of the authors of that study. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. COVID. It's always going to be COVID for the next little while because, well, the numbers are pretty frightening right now. Yesterday during his daily briefing, uh, Premier Doug Ford says that we are now into the second wave and it could be a lot worse than the first with increasing cases. Just how bad could it get? Well, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. David Williams, was there yesterday and this is how he explained it. We are, as the Premier said, in a second wave. The question is, which type of second wave is it? And we've taken the advice and direction of the modelers, have looked at it, as well as what they've seen in other countries. And right now we were in a second wave that looks like one of those undulating waves. How big it is, we don't know yet. It's not like the tsunami-type second wave. We're watching to see this will have impact on our systems. How much will it have impact on our systems? We're better prepared this time than we were in the first wave. We have more things available, more documents, and more metrics being measured in all sectors. And so we see those things nudging and we want to move ahead of the curve as the premier said to step up to stop this to flatten this curve as we did successfully on the first curve and i think we can do that again if we focus on our tasks at hand so let's talk about that task at hand and how we can actually attack this thing let's uh, bring dr anna Banerjee into the program she of course is a faculty lead with indigenous refugee health in the faculty of medicine at the university of toronto doctor thank you so much for the time great to talk with you again today oh my pleasure you know, it, it, I'm trying to look at a glasses half full scenario here from Dr. Williams saying we know more now, we should be better prepared now. Yet I'm looking at these numbers, doctor, and uh, this shouldn't be happening since we do know more, but it is happening. Uh, I don't think this is surprising. I think if you look at uh, places around the world, this is a typical pattern. So I think that, you know, thinking that it was gone uh, once, uh, you know, the warm weather hit and we we're at, a thousand, you know, 100 uh, cases a day. I think that was being optimistic, but the the fact that we're surging upwards and we're in a second wave, I think in some ways it was uh, was predictable. Is, it, was it because of the back to school? Is it because we we let our guard down, or a combination thereof? It's uh, mostly because this is the way the virus is. It's a highly infectious uh-huh. virus, and you know when you get people together, it, it spreads. And so part of it is you know the weather's changing. People are spending more time indoors. We're also opening things up, like restaurants, bars. Also, we're having kids go back to school. So there's a whole bunch of activities that have changed. But also, you know, in the winter season, a lot of these viruses tend to, um, you know, surge. Is the virus itself changing, Doctor? Or do we have evidence of that? Um, it looks like the virus is mutating um, a bit from the original virus in Wuhan. It looks like there are some uh, the changes. Now, what does that translate to uh, as far as uh, outcomes? I don't really know. I don't know if it's getting milder or, or you know, hopefully milder or changing in characteristics. But we know that uh, what they had originally in Wuhan is very different than what they have in, in the different countries around the world. So, you know, what does that mean? I don't know yet. But, but it, could it mean that this is like influenza where you have immunity for a while, but then the immunity um, 
uh, goes down and then you can get reinfected by a different strain of the virus. No one really knows that yet, but there have been cases of reinfection in different parts of the world. But again, there have been, to my knowledge, just a handful of cases out of a population of 8 billion. So it seems like it's, it's not a, a common occurrence yet, but we don't yet know because it hasn't been around long enough. I was going to say, Dr. Williams uh, quote there that uh, we know more, but we still don't know a lot, do we? I mean, there's a lot yeah. yet to be discovered. Yeah, we've never been through uh, this virus in a winter season before. Um, you know, and hopefully, you know, next winter season we'll have a vaccine or, or before that. But we've never been in this position with this this kind of new virus yet. So we don't really know what the outcome is going to be. With the one example I guess we do have, and I think you and I had this discussion a couple of weeks ago, uh, Australia has come out of their winter. Of course, the seasons are opposite to what we have here on this side of the of the equator. And uh, their flu numbers were down. The, the COVID numbers, sadly, didn't really go down a whole lot. Uh, but uh, because everybody was wearing masks and, and doing the social distancing, which is what we're all supposed to be doing these days, uh, they said the impact was far less than they had actually thought, uh, which I guess gives us hope. But, I mean, we've got to get back to basics here, don't we? Yeah, I, I think we're trying to find a fine balance between keeping people safe, reducing the number of hospitalizations uh, and morbidity and death, and trying to have people live their lives. Because, you know, a, a shutdown has uh, significant implications for the society, for, for economic reasons, for mental health reasons. It's It's very, very hard. And also, you know, how much cooperation is there going to be this time again if there's if we end up going into a shutdown. It's, it's, so that would be something that I would think would be a worst-case scenario, but I think it's I'm trying to figure out how do we live with COVID before we get the vaccine? What things can we do to reduce the risk of transmission, and especially to reduce the risk of transmission to vulnerable populations? Yeah, which brings to mind seniors, long-term care facilities, things of this nature. And, and we saw the devastation that was rocked upon them, of course, in the spring of this year. Uh, and again, because we weren't doing everything we were supposed to be doing. Some people were wearing masks, some weren't. I think we're smarter than that now. Uh, yeah. But have we have we moved ahead enough, Doctor? I mean, you know, you've been following this as we have about the precautions that are being taken and, uh, you know, the social distancing and barriers being put up, uh, maybe not so much in the school situation, but, I mean, at least in some of the commercial elements, too. Have we have we armed ourselves with enough tools to be able to, to ward this off? I think that we have to a certain point, but I think that now that we're escalating again, I think we need to do a bit more. And, you know, so it's, it's giving us the warning that it's, it's surging again. So, you know, the, how do we do things without shutting things down? I think some of the things are just doing what we do, you know, using the mask, but implementing the mask. I mean, I have heard so many scenarios where people come in and they don't wear their masks or they say, you know, I've got a medical exemption when, you know, you know, they'll say, well, I have asthma. Well, lots of people have asthma, but, you know, you can still wear a mask. Um, there's, you know, or people wearing the mask below the nose. So I think implementing the masks, I think now, I think more and more places, depending on the rates of COVID, they're going to have a different strategy instead of these bubbles, which in some ways was confusing. But I think it's going to be basically stick to your immediate family or, you know, your, your immediate family bubble or a, a certain limited number of people that are ex- exclusive. Like, so it's not saying just don't go outside of your household. You may have parents or neighbors, but just as long as you stay within those confines and no one's going, you know, no one there is going out to a party with a bunch of other people. The problem with the bubble system is that it's not, it, you know, 
exclusive. When you've got 10 people, they might hang out together, but, that, but no one guarantees that some of the people of the 10 are hanging out with another group of 10. So it's that lack of exclusivity that increases the risk of spread. Uh, when you, so it's a physical distancing for, for schools, I believe, from you know some of the patients I've talked to, that the virus is spreading in schools more than we know. The kids are often being tested negative, but what we see is that the parents are getting sick. So I think what I've said many, many times, and I've even spoken to this uh, in the past week to uh, Dr. Yaffe, to the ministry, which was asking me, what should we do about the kids? I said, you know, kids should stay at home. They, they were saying, well, if you get a negative test and you can go back to school 24 hours after your symptoms stop. When I know, and I've heard so many families in the past few weeks where their kids are sick, the parent has classical symptoms of COVID, but they say, oh, no, the kid can go back to school because the test is negative. It's like, it doesn't make sense. So, yes, I think that a lot of the kids that have the cold-like symptoms, the runny nose, sore throat, that's probably COVID. You know, that's the way it presents in kids. And so, you know, we just need to try to do our best, keep those kids at home, um, you know, try to get smaller class sizes so that we can try to physical distance as much as possible because we don't want to shut down classes or shut down schools. We want to get through this Um, because, again, shutting down schools has significant implications for so many different people. We probably should have known this, uh, you know, because, I mean, you know, schools are one of the worst places for, for spreading of colds or the flu, whatever the case might be, uh, simply because kids intermingle all the time. And as you say, they become carriers, even if they don't show all the symptoms. And then they go home and they spread it to parents, grandparents, whatever the case might be. And, yeah. and it happens every cold season. It happens every flu season. If so, we've got to figure it was, of course, it was going to happen during COVID. Yes. Yes. It, you know, it, it's, this was fairly predictable. I've been saying that for a while. I think that, you know, the kids get pretty minor symptoms. It's just, you know, the, the adults at home, you, 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 you want to make sure that there's no one vulnerable there, but also you want to make sure that they're not spreading it to outside of the home. So if the kids are bringing home COVID, which is unfortunate, um, but in some ways predictable, then you, you want to stay away from the elderly grandparents or the people who are on chemo or someone who, if they do get COVID, can have very significant consequences or even die. Um, and, and for those families, when these kids are, are coming home sick, keep them at home. If the adults get sick, even with a negative test, stay at home. I think that, you know, my biggest criticism of the policy now has been this, this uh, dependence on a test when we know that the false negative rate is about 30%. And so you have 100 people with COVID, two-thirds of them, you know, all different ranges of symptoms, two-thirds have um, a positive test, a third have a negative test. With the two-thirds of the positive test, you do contact tracing, you, you know, you tell them, you call them every day, you isolate them, etc. But the third that, that have COVID with a negative test, you do nothing for. And so we need to focus on that group to say that that group you know, the, the people who are symptomatic in this era, you know, there's not a lot of flu yet. People wearing, most people wearing masks. There's not a lot of common respiratory viruses yet. If you are, if you are sick, just stay at home. How important is the flu shot in this whole scenario? We know, contrary to what some people were saying back a few months ago, uh, the flu shots are going to help you against COVID-19, but it, it can obviously fend off the flu. How important is that as we're looking at this this two-headed dragon of, of COVID and flu uh, that's that's probably just a few weeks away down the road? Well, COVID's already here. 
Yeah, a flu shot this year is critical because, you know, it reduces the chance of you getting influenza. And and it's critical because uh, as the, the viral response has been stopped, you don't want to have uh, uh, confusion. Is If a child gets sick or an adult gets sick, is this influenza or, or is this flu? If you can try to take influenza off the table, then then you're less likely to panic when you, when a child or an adult gets respiratory symptoms or viral symptoms, and, and that might mean that, you know, the anxiety, but also that means, might mean sometimes, uh, depending on the policy, is getting your child tested and staying home for school or work. And so uh, this year, you, again, you should try to take the um, influenza as much as possible off the table because it confuses the COVID situation. Talk to us about the impact this is having on the healthcare system, and, and we know about the testing and the long lineups. We've seen that, uh, but I'm talking first of all about. Uh, well, let's talk about hospitals. I guess off the top of the list here, uh, we saw the the push that went on and, and the pressure that this put on the hospital system during the first wave. Uh, we were a little better in this country than we were with our American friends, but nonetheless, it was a pressure. And I'm told that we're not, uh, like, fewer people are dying from COVID, and that's a great story because we've learned how to treat it much better than we did six months ago. But hospitalizations are up, and uh, I'm told that many of the hospitals around the southern Ontario GTHA area are running at almost full capacity now. So we can't really afford a huge wave here that's going to require hospitalization, can we? No, we can't. And, and that's why we need to do our part and stay at home as much as possible and 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 just reduce the risk of exposure to other people. And, you know, and, and if, if the hospitalizations start exceeding the capacity, it's not just the COVID patients, it's all the other patients that can't get into an ICU bed because the hospital's full, like people having strokes or heart attack or cancer, et cetera. It's huge. So the implications, and so if that happens, then probably there's going to be a shutdown because I think if we start exceeding the capacity for us to cope, and we have to take, well, the government has to take stricter measures. And so I think that that's why for all of us to try to do our best to, to reduce the risk of spread, uh, you know, of COVID, I think it's critical right now. You mentioned masks a couple of minutes ago. I got an email yesterday about uh, somebody who was similar to what you were just describing. I uh, said they had some problems with the mask, and, and you know, so they just have it on their mouth and on their nose. Uh, and I reminded her, and when I responded, I said, you understand the nose is connected to your lungs, too. Uh, and, you know, and it is an airborne virus, so you're not really doing much good if, you, if that's the way it is. Uh, I, I'm flummoxed, doctor, by the number of people that are complaining about this because they, they have to wear the mask for maybe 15 minutes at a time uh, while they're in a store. Uh, it, it's not a big deal, really, for, for just about all of us. Uh, yet they just seem it's a major inconvenience as opposed to, you know, not wearing a mask. We already saw what can happen then. Well, a complete, lock, complete lockdown would be a major inconvenience as well, right? And if yeah. we don't all start wearing the masks when, when we're supposed to and, and doing the distancing and trying to restrict our social interactions, we're going to have a lockdown. And then, yes, you may not have to wear your mask, but then you can't go out. And so it, it has real, you know, you not wearing your mask and potentially spreading it to someone who takes it home to their elderly grandparent and they end up in the hospital, you're not seeing the long-term, the real long-term consequences of your actions. So, so again, rather than being punitive, we, we want to go call to the, the better nature of fellow Canadians to say we need to do this to protect each other. We did it for a long time. They asked us to stay at home. We all stayed at home. So now, you know, we need to wear the masks. And, and 
you know, there's a lot of people in stores um, that, you know, you know, people walk into stores may not be wearing a mask and they don't feel empowered enough, especially young people to say, please put on your mask. Not everyone's work supports them. So, so, you know, we need to get people to wear their masks. Great advice. And on that note, we'll uh, finish it off, doctor. As always, thank you so much for the time. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Take care. Dr. Anna Banjari, of course, from University of Toronto and the Faculty of Medicine. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. An interesting twist, a bizarre twist, as a matter of fact, to a story that we've been covering on this program for quite some time. Uh, And that is, of course, uh, well, Hamilton's LGBTQ2 Advisory Committee, uh, which uh, became a rather contentious point some time ago, of course, uh, when they requested uh, 2019, I guess it was, uh, that the city not raise the pride flag uh, during Pride Week at City Hall because there were some concerns about the relationship between City Council and uh, this uh, this advisory committee. Uh, things got worse, of course, during the Pride celebrations uh, with the uh, controversy and the confrontation that happened at Gage Park in Hamilton. And uh, we talked with the the chair of that committee, Cameron Croce, on a number of different occasions. And uh, we were surprised to find out uh, this week that uh, somebody on City Council, or maybe City Council as a whole, actually asked the Integrity Commissioner to rule on uh, Mr. Croce's uh, behaviors and comments over the last little while, including some comments he made on this radio show uh, back in May of 2019 about uh, some of the things that he was very frustrated about. Uh, I wanted to get Cameron to come back on here to explain exactly what's going on and uh, and the steps going forward on this. Uh, Cameron, welcome back to the program. It's good to talk with you again. I wish it were under better circumstances. Hi, Bill. Thanks very much for having me on. I agree. Yes. I, let's, I, I just want people to be clear about something here uh, because of, of the protocol and, and what's gone on here in the last little while. Uh, we all know about the Integrity Commissioner. Many communities, many city councils use Integrity Commissioners to, to try to, to talk about and evaluate uh, and the behavior of elected officials and city staff. We get that. Uh, you're neither. Uh, you're not an elected official. Uh, you're not city staff. You're a volunteer. Is that correct? Yes, I'm a volunteer, Bill. Totally, that's um, my role as chair of the LGBTQ Advisory Committee. And yes, I was surprised by this complaint being filed six months ago. I wasn't aware that the Integrity Commissioner could be used against volunteers or members of the community and residents um, by City Council to file a complaint. And so I was surprised to get this complaint when it came in, yes. So when you joined that committee some time ago, the LGBTQ2 community, uh, were you told at that time to uh, to cease and desist from expressing opinions on uh, on controversial matters? No, I wasn't. And my understanding is that advisory committees are there to give advice, right? They're there to provide feedback to city council about the decisions they make, and that this whole function of an LGBTQ plus advisory committee is to advocate on behalf of marginalized communities. I mean. The committee had been holding a flag-raising ceremony for years. It had been holding public events, advocating for years. So to me, it seemed a perfectly logical extension of an advisory committee to be giving advice to council. Well, and, and I mean, I'm going to go back to the interview that you and I did back in May of 2019. And, and it, it circled around a couple of different issues, of course. And uh, one was the city staffer who has uh, since left uh, the city's employee. But the other one, of course, was a process uh, about uh, choosing citizen members for the police services board. Uh, and I don't need to remind you of this, Cameron, but I'll remind our listeners once again. Uh, you are not the first voice to suggest that there should be more diversity on the police services board and city council should be cognizant of that. That's not to suggest there's a quota system or anything, but, uh, 
you and many other people that I've talked to uh, were very disappointed in the process for selecting the city member this time around. Yes, including those who had applied to the position multiple times have openly spoken about their experiences and openly spoken about how it's important for all of our civic institutions to represent everyone in our community. And, Bill, a lot of this, uh, you know, I shared the opinions of the LGBTQ Advisory Committee, and I hold many positions in the community besides that. Um, but this is a motion that the LGBTQ Advisory Committee it passed at its public meeting. Right? So this is a decision of the committee. It said, we really want to let City Council know that there are some issues we're concerned about. We don't think it makes sense to have the flag raised. And so this is all around that May 2019 motion, a motion that was made in public, right? So this isn't something where I'm kind of expressing my own opinion about the subject. It's something that was voted upon. It was something that we discussed at length in public. And also, um, as a chair, it's my job to represent the committee and the committee's decisions in public. And I think it's important to point out that um, as a member of the queer community, that I think that this is an attempt to silence voices and silence those who are marginalized in our community. Um, and I'm going to continue to speak out, Bill, and won't be silenced. I've spoken on this program, and you've listened to it, Cameron, so you, you can validate this. Uh, many of the other people in this community, uh, not just from your committee, uh, that, that were concerned about process and about some of the things and, and the business that was going on at Hamilton City Hall, uh, some of them actually have, were quite upfront and said, yeah, they actually applied for some of these positions that you and I have talked about, and we're you know, shaking their heads as to why they didn't get serious consideration for it. Uh, but nonetheless, they had a platform on this program to express that. Uh, and to my knowledge, none of them are being investigated by the Integrity Commissioner. No, they're not. And I'm not the first person on either the LGBTQ Advisory Committee or other advisory committees to be speaking out in public, sharing my views, and talking about the decisions made by our city government. So it is a surprise, again, that they're further um, having this complaint filed against me um, for speaking, um, again, about decisions that are made in public. How much of this uh, on process, Cameron, how much of this do you know uh, about the background? In other words, where did the complaint come from? Is it, was it a city council motion to do this? Was it a, an individual councillor? Any idea of the origin of, of, of the, the request for the Integrity Commissioner to even get involved in this? That mostly seems to have happened in camera, so in a closed session. I'm not sure what the vote was or when that discussion took place. I know some councillors did speak at committee meetings um, about our minutes at the at the committee, and they also spoke, um, as Terry Whitehead had once mentioned, about coming um, to investigate members of advisory committees and use the word impeachment at one point to discuss, um, you know, following this through were his words, I believe. And so I know those matters were discussed in public, and so there was a sense that something was going to happen. But no, this doesn't appear to have happened in public, and this coming to the public agenda for tomorrow's meeting of council um, is the first time I think people are seeing this happen in public, um, and it was only sent to me uh, late last week. Now, because what I'm trying to get my head around here, Cameron, is is what was the breach here? Was there was, uh, Apparently, like I say, I asked you, I read up front, you were not told that you had to cease and desist from being opinionated on controversial issues. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's, I think, one of the reasons why they probably would want somebody like you on the committee so to, to bring that and shine the light on certain issues that need to be discussed in situations like this. So that's not it. Uh, I don't think you broke any laws. I don't think you broke any bylaws by saying what you did. 
you stated an opinion that might have rubbed some feathers the wrong way. Too bad, so sad. That's you know, you're an elected official. If you can't get used to that, you're in the wrong job. But so, so I'm trying to find out exactly what the, the rationalization was for, for at the request in the first place. It just doesn't seem to make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me either, Bill. I think it's an important point that you're making, and it did come out of the blue when City Council filed this complaint with the Integrity Commissioner, um, because I don't think anyone expected that they could file it against a volunteer. Um, as you say, and as far as I can tell. The allegations here seem to be about uh, criticism, right? It's about criticism of City Hall and criticism of elected officials. And they're saying that that's not allowed um, and that advisory committees aren't permitted to give advice to City Council and advice that they consider to be critical. So I'm not sure um, how they think that's going to impact those who are on advisory committees right now because advisory committees are made up of members they appointed. They appointed all these individuals themselves to represent different communities, many of them marginalized and oppressed communities in Hamilton, and those committee members are there in good faith. They're taking up their volunteer time to um, study issues, to reach out to the members of their communities, to, in good faith, uh, find out what Hamiltonians want to tell their city government. And they're trying to do that work um, and bring that forward to council. And this is going to send a really chilling message to a lot of folks who are sitting on advisory committees. Now how are they going to react? What are they going to say? What do they feel they're going to be permitted to do? Because I don't think anyone, myself included, um, you know, should be put through uh, an ordeal like this of six months um, during a pandemic of an investigation. And I think that um, it's not going to help to get engagement up in the city. It's not going to help residents to feel like they belong here. It's not going to help them to feel if they want to participate or can participate in their local government. I mean, if they're going to start running around chasing people that have contrary points of view, uh, we're going to need a lot more integrity commissioners in this city uh, because that's the, that's the democratic process. I mean, you're allowed to do that. You're supposed to do that. You're encouraged to do that, as a matter of fact. And it's, it smacks very much to me and uh, of, of, of simply saying, look, it, just stay there and, and be quiet, okay? And uh, you can tell us how great we are if you want, but don't, don't, don't start stating contrary opinions because that hurts their feelings. Uh, there are a lot of people that were concerned about process. As a matter of fact, if I recall some of the discussion around the city council horn, uh, even some councillors were somewhat concerned about the process, and maybe we need to review that. So th this is not like this came out of the blue, that there was a concern about how citizen members are chosen for some committees or for the police services board. Uh, it's not unusual, nor w were you the only voice, uh, to sh express shock and dismay that there was a a, a, a an individual on city staff here who was, uh, well, let's say, associated with uh, with white supremacists for quite some time, and somebody apparently knew about it and did nothing about it. Uh, so, are you supposed to just be quiet? Is that is that what you're asking? They're asking you to do is just sit on your hands and say nothing and do nothing. These are really serious issues, Bill, that impact marginalized communities in Hamilton. It's the job of these advisory committees to listen to those communities and bring this information forward when it has an impact on them. And I think it's a responsibility of folks on those committees to do that work. And you mentioned process, and I think that's important because this has been an interesting and often strange process. This isn't um, the complaint filed by city council with the integrity commissioner. Um, it's filed with an organization called Principles Integrity. Um, one of the principles of the organization is the former city solicitor. And so this also causes um, a lot of confusion for me about... Um, is 
there, is there a conflict there? Um, is the city uh, asking someone who used to give them advice to then um, now file a complaint against a citizen? So there's a lot here about the processes of the city that I think need to be questioned and talked about because it's really unclear as to if the city council has jurisdiction to be filing a complaint like this. And as far as I know, it's unprecedented for them to file a complaint against a volunteer like this. What are you going to do about it? I know you've hired legal counsel. Yeah, I'm going to continue to um, read and talk to my lawyer, and I'm going to wait to see what the outcome is, because right now before council, tomorrow morning at 9.30, um, there's a decision for them to make, and the the Integrity Commissioner has made three um, recommendations. One, that I'd be reprimanded. Two, if they suggest that I resign from the committee, which I will not do. And three, that if I don't resign, City Council has the authority to remove me from the committee. So at this point, um, it's going to be up to City Council to make a decision. I'm sure you've seen um, reporting in other media where um, they're kind of washing their hands of it, sort of saying, you know, this is a hands-off process and the Integrity Commissioner is the one who's making this decision, but I want people not to forget that this complaint was filed by City Council. When I received their 61-page complaint from the Integrity Commissioner, I said quite clearly at the top of the message that it was filed on behalf of City Council and that it was City Council who filed the complaint. This is not something where you know the Integrity Commissioner was sort of sitting around on their own thinking, I'd love to file this complaint. This is initiated by our City Council, and I think it's important for people to watch that meeting and hear the discussion about um, what they're going to decide tomorrow. I just, and I'm sure your counsel and you have talked about this, but I mean, I, again, I'll go back to my initial point here. Uh, when the complaint was filed and when you got the copy of, of the, the decision that was rendered in a situation like this, usually when you are charged with something, and essentially that's what's happening here, not, not necessarily criminally charged, I don't mean that, but charged with an offense of some description, at some point they need to describe what the, what the offense was, and, and I don't see that they've been very clear about that. You spoke out. Uh, and, and advisory committee members are not supposed to speak out. As I say, please show me where, where that's written into the into the bylaws, into the requirements for people to sit on these subcommittees. Is that what they're inferring here? I'm not, not 100% sure what they're inferring here, Bill. It's very technical, as you say, and very difficult to read or make sense of exactly what the allegations are. Um, they certainly seem to be saying that me coming on this radio program and talking about the public motion. Well, I, the I know what the accusations passed. are. They're pissed off at what you said. That's really what it comes down to. Right. And so I'm not sure what they're inferring here, but it does seem like they're trying to stop that criticism from happening. And I'm not the only person who's been subjected to this in the city of Hamilton. We've been watching um, delegations happen at the city. We had uh, lawyer Ned Nolan come forward to speak about uh, his opinions about what was happening in his neighborhood with traffic calming, and we saw the kind of attacks from councillors. Uh, on him during that delegation, which again isn't new. This kind of silencing of critical voices in our community and the kind of pushing people away from being engagement, engaged in the community and engaged in their civic government isn't something that's brand new to Hamilton. I think now we're seeing more of it, and I think we're seeing um, it more clearly articulated, and I think this is a new kind of thing that's happening that I'm very, very worried about for our civic democracy. I'm worried about the impact this is going to have on other people trying to come forward and give their feedback to their city government, because I think it sends a terribly chilling message to people about what they are and are not allowed to do and the lengths our government will go to to silence them. 
there's a, there's a protocol that should be followed here. And, and listen, I, you know, we try to give a platform to contrary points of view on this program too. That's not to suggest I agree with all of them. I don't, as a matter of fact. But they have a right to be heard as long as they're civil about it, as long as they're not insulting and personal about it. Uh, you know, we can debate points of view and we can debate uh, attitudes and, and, and protocols and methodologies. Uh, that's, that's part of the democratic process. Uh, and we're dealing, as you've just mentioned, with some very controversial issues, uh, not just in this city, but in cities all over the, the province, all over the country right now. Uh, so whether you're an elected official in municipal government or provincial government or federal government, uh, you better be ready to accept the fact that there's going to be some hardened criticism about this because people are very opinionated. And we were talking about, uh, I, I think, a group that's being emboldened right now because they say, look, we've got to do something about our committee. We've got important decisions to make in this city, for instance. Uh, to do with with uh, racial unrest, to do with the relationship between Hamilton Police Services and some of these other communities uh, that feel as if they don't have a voice, and and those are those are positions that I think need to be discussed. But it sounds as if they're just basically trying to say shut you down and say, look, it just you know sit there and, and be pretty and and you know we so we can say yes, we've got an advisory committee, but we we really don't want to hear anything controversial from you. And in context here, Bill, is really important. Since July 2018, there have been 15 complaints filed with the Integrity Commissioner. And of those 15 complaints, mine's the only one they've pursued. We're talking about some pretty egregious stuff we've seen happen in public where our elected officials have come after reporters and other kinds of things. And those complaints were filed, and there was not a formal public report put on the council agenda about it. Those, those complaints seem to have been wrapped up and put away. And the only one they're pursuing is this complaint against me. And so I think that, yes, you're right about um, governments needing to understand that communities are going to continue to call them out. They are going to continue to have their voices heard, and they are going to continue to speak up. And their ability to handle that criticism and to be in dialogue with it is going to tell us whether they're going to be successful in governing our cities. And if they can't have this basic conversation with committees full of members that they appointed to give them advice. I'm very worried about our democracy and very worried about what this says about their ability to lead us through um, these really challenging times we're going through. Well, you know what, we're going to follow with great interest what they're going to do at this meeting tomorrow. Uh, you know, As you say, the councillors seem to be rather ambiguous about just how they want to proceed with this, uh, at least when they're asked publicly about it anyway. But they're going to have to do something about it tomorrow, and we'll certainly follow up uh, after that decision is rendered and see where you're going. Cameron, thanks so much for the time today. I uh, really appreciate this. I don't know that we've clarified a whole lot of stuff, but I don't know that there's a whole lot uh, to be clarified. I think we have a pretty strong consensus here what this is all about. And we'll see how our city councillors, our elected officials, respond to it. Uh, thanks again. Stay well. Thank you, Bill. Cameron Croce, uh, the aggrieved party, of course, and uh, the uh, the focus of the uh, Integrity Commissioner's report. And we'll certainly follow up on that story in the days and weeks ahead. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting study, fascinating study that was published yesterday in the Canadian Medical Association Journal found that poorer Canadians have a greater chance of dying earlier than those that are well off, that wealth and education gaps continue uh, to grow for decades now, and it has an impact on our health. Joining us uh, is uh, one of the authors of that study, Dr. Faraz Vahid Shahidi, who is a Mustard Postdoctoral Fellow, uh, Social and Behavioral Science Center at the University of Toronto and the Institute of Work and Health. Doctor, thank you so much. I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. 
I read the overview, Doctor, and uh, it, it reminded me of a, a study I read years and years ago by the great Fraser Mustard, Dr. Fraser Mustard, about the determinants of health. And uh, uh, and you've really nailed this here. The education and, and su- subsequent wealth, of course, have a huge, huge, or lack thereof, has a huge impact on, on people's health, doesn't it? Absolutely. So for decades and, in fact, centuries, we've known that you know people's everyday uh, sort of resources and positions within social and economic hierarchies in our society play a fundamental role in determining sort of who gets sick and who stays healthy. And it, it's not just, well, you're wealthy so you can afford better health care. Uh, it's, it's lifestyles, it's diet, it's, it's environment. I mean, there's so many, so many subtexts sub, to this whole thing, aren't there? Absolutely. So, you know, one part of the picture, of course, is that even within within the context of, you know, public health insurance, we know that things like income and education are predictive of whether or not sort of you do access and you can access, but also the quality of sort of care that you receive. But there's a much bigger picture, as you just sort of alluded to, um, with respect to sort of, again, beyond healthcare, beyond treatment, people's everyday social and economic conditions. So we're thinking here about sort of, do you have access to safe and healthy living conditions? You know, homes, do you have access to good, decent, gainful employment? Um, do you have access to healthy and affordable food options and, and transportation and so on? And again, so decades of science telling us that well beyond healthcare, there are these everyday circumstances, these everyday social and economic resources that are shaping this gradient in, in life expectancy and in health. And, and as you say, I'm glad you, you you broke this down into subtext because I mean, there's so many different aspects to this. I mean, you know, people that are financially challenged for whatever reason, oftentimes it may well be because they, they don't go as far in in the academic world as as others have. Uh, they tend to live in, as you say, poorer accommodations. Obviously, have poorer diets, and 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 they 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 understand this, and, and they're quite frank about this. You know, it's it's cheaper to buy unhealthy food uh you know that, that's just the way things are and if you don't have a whole lot of disposable income because you're trying to pay your rent or whatever the case might be uh these people are really stuck between a rock and a hard place absolutely i mean if you just think about how the cost of basic sort of goods in our society including food um, but also things like shelter and education the cost of these basic goods in our society have far outpaced sort of many working canadians um wages and earnings and so in that sense, it's not a surprise to see their health lag further and further behind um, the sort of health of their uh, richer counterparts um, over time. I, I would think environment plays a role in that, too, wouldn't it, Doctor? I mean, if you're uh, you look at, at some of the situations, I know some cities have tried uh, to, to move forward on affordable housing. It's been a very, very problematic situation for the longest time right now. Uh, but, you know, we look at some of the studies that have been done in the Hamilton and London areas over the last little while. Uh, poorer neighborhoods tend to have things like poor air quality, fewer amenities for recreational for, uh, facilities for kids, things of this nature. It's, it's, it's almost as if it's, it's, they're built to fail and when they move into those circumstances. Right, absolutely. So we're learning with every single year. We're just learning the sort of myriad and, and often like just innumerable ways in which people... Um, who are um, disadvantaged with respect to uh, sort of resources like income and education, just the innumerable ways in which life is stacked literally um, against them. Um, and, and these are the sort of processes that we think that we're documenting in studies like this, which are showing the mortality gap between rich and poor widened, in part because of things like physical um, and built environments. Yeah. 
And for those who may be listening to this and say, well, that's not me. You know, why should I care about this? Uh, we all pay for this, don't we? We do. I mean, you can't put a price on, on, a, on a healthy and happy society. Um, and, you know, we have all sorts of econom- uh, economic evaluations um, showing that, you know, these health inequalities are costing both individuals and communities and also they're costing society as a whole. Um, and, and we can all stand to benefit by encouraging the kind of policy action we need to actually reduce these, these mortality inequalities. Well, let's talk about the impact that it has on the healthcare system. We already know, and I, I think you're absolutely right, we need to remind people about the impact it has on social service costs, which, by the way, are borne by property taxpayers, so it is your problem. Uh, no matter who you are and where you are, no matter how much money you make, uh, those who are not doing as well off uh, are going to have an impact on this. But let's talk a little bit about the impact it does have on health care. We were just talking earlier, obviously, with the concern about the second wave of COVID now, doctor, that we're apparently dealing with, uh, that hospitals are already almost now at capacity now. So, I mean, in new cases, whether it's COVID or not COVID, are going to cause a huge strain on that. Uh, we've already talked about uh, the lineups at ER, the wait times at situations like this. I mean, it's already happening. This is not, a, hey, if this doesn't get better, this might happen. It's already been happening. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the, the thing we like to point out is that, you know, healthcare systems, including Canada's healthcare system, they're really good at treating problems. Um, but in public health, we're actually more so in the business of trying to prevent them in the first place. And one of the sort of um, one of the important points that studies like ours um, alert us to is that we stand to gain a lot by investing in the kind of preventive policy measures we need to keep people from getting sick in the first place and to keep you know, our healthcare systems from having to respond to problem, wave of problem after problem um, in the first place. Absolutely. Why don't governments respond to this? This, uh, this, is, this study, doctor, is not the first one to suggest that we need to be proactive as opposed to reactive. Common sense dictates that we should be more proactive in situations like this. Yet time and time again, uh, we, we just find that, well, the dollars aren't there or the motivation by government is not there uh, to do what needs to be done to try to address this. Right. I mean, well, first I want to be clear about what sort of measures, policy measures and policy solutions we're talking about here. So we're talking about efforts to raise the minimum wage, to improve job security, to increase social assistance rates, to expand access to key social benefits like employment insurance and invest in basic social infrastructure like housing and long-term care. So these are the sorts of actionable policy solutions that governments have available to them to do something about this mortality gradient. I mean... With respect to your question on sort of why governments have hesitated to pursue that action, I mean, I can only speculate, but I think uh, most of your listeners will agree that um, it's a lot more than public health evidence that goes into sort of informing these very political um, decisions. Um, There are a lot of powerful and competing sort of social and economic interests at play, and the evidence we provide as public health scientists is one fraction. of the sort of puzzle informing those political decisions. Um, But I will say that the science is very clear on what the policy solutions are to redress, to uh, to address and and reduce these health inequalities. Doctor, we could talk for hours about the political implications of this. And and it's not a pretty picture sometimes. And there's a a couple of things that stark realities. Uh, One being that oftentimes politicians think in three or four year cycles because that's when their next election is coming up. And and this is going to be a long-term solution that's going to require some investment. And and that's a problem. Uh, The other is much more cynical than that even as they figure, okay, a lot of these people that are negatively impacted probably don't vote anyway. Uh, But that's not what officials should be thinking. They should be thinking what's best for the entire community because as we just talked about, 
uh, the, uh, doing these sorts of things and, and creating these initiatives, it lifts the whole community up, not just one segment of the population. Right. We're saving individual lives, and in the process, we're helping communities and we're helping society as a whole. We have tried, and some communities have done better than others at this, but with, with some outreach programs and try to reach into some of these challenged neighborhoods and, and challenged demographics and try to reach out to them. Uh, you know, things like breakfast programs or lunch programs at some of the, the schools in these particular areas of the cities and things of that nature. Uh, and with that in mind, I, I should say that under the proviso that we're probably still not doing enough. Are you surprised that we're not making some inroads into this? Because the numbers don't seem to be getting a whole lot better. So a couple of ideas there. So first, there is um, a going notion um, sort of in, in public health that um, though we would like it not to be the case, individuals and communities cannot succeed where governments fail, um, which is why sort of what I'm trying to bring attention to are really fundamental resources in our everyday lives, like wages, the quality of our jobs, our access to sort of a, a generous um, social safety net these major, major sort of um, sort of government instruments to, to support people's lives. And, and the idea that individuals and communities can succeed when those sort of government supports are failing them um, is really dubious, unfortunately. Um, but I will say um, that with respect to whether or not we ought to be surprised that the mortality gap is widening, you know, massive body of science telling us, again, that it's these everyday social and economic conditions. And we also are, are sort of very aware, I think, today that social and economic inequalities in our society are widening, widening. Just consider, for example, the massive concentration of income and wealth that has accumulated at the top end of our society, right? And in that sense, if we know that social and economic conditions are fundamental to people's health, and if we know that inequalities in social and economic in, uh, conditions have, have widened over time, we actually can't be surprised, unfortunately, to find that the mortality gap, um, these mortality inequalities between rich and poor have also widened over time. Well, and we've seen examples of that, you know, to, to personalize this, you know, people that are, could be single mothers and they're, they're working, they're working two, sometimes three jobs, you know, to, to try to, to pay the rent and feed uh, their kids. And it's, it's problematic for that. But if you're pushing yourself, your body to that extent, doctor, you're going to get sick. I mean, that's all there is to it. And, and, you know, and you worry about nutrition for the children as a result of that. And you wonder about, you know, their, their, their mindset, their, their mental health as well. We, we haven't even touched on that, and I know that's a key factor here there as well. Uh, oftentimes, we're dealing with things like substance abuse in, in, in some of these problems, which only exacerbates the situation. Uh, we really have to open our eyes to, to what we're supposed to be dealing with here and how we should approach this. I mean, absolutely. I mean, we're just, again, every year learning just, there's the so many ways in which these sort of everyday experiences of stress, everyday experiences of um, sort of um, strain literally get under our skin and cause premature death. Um, and that's what we're, we're finding. And what we're finding is that um, it's getting worse. The problem is getting worse. But what you've said in the report, uh, and again echoes what we've seen in other reports in other jurisdictions in the past too, uh, this is not just a, a, an outline as to what's wrong. I mean, the solutions are available to us. And we, we let's face it, if, if we're being honest with ourselves, we know what the solutions are. We just have to ask ourselves if we have the commitment to do what needs to be done here. Um, right. And the good news is that I think a lot of these policy solutions are gaining political traction. We are, I think, hearing more and more about how wages 
have stagnated. We are hearing more and more about how income inequality and wealth inequality are major, major social problems in our society. Um, The hope is that as these ideas and as these um, sort of policy solutions gain traction, um, they'll have a greater influence on government decision making. And we'll see uh, the sort of policy action that we know we need and we know we can implement in order to close the mortality gap between rich and poor and again in the process create healthier and happier communities and a healthier and happier society i think your point's well taken i mean we do make baby steps forward in some of these things there there was discussion here in ontario of course about a, a living wage your know, basic income uh it's been nixed so far but of course with the covid uh, pandemic that's come on now all of a sudden that just that's being discussed again i don't know if we're ready for that to happen but at least as you say there seems to be some traction behind some of these things as well uh all of a sudden the federal and provincial governments are starting to understand the need for public housing and affordable housing uh which is, is part of the solution too it's it's a complex problem and it's a complex solution uh but you're right i mean we need to understand that we've got to move forward on some of these things and i know it sounds trite and cliche-ish to say this doctor but you know because the usual pushback when we have reports like yours coming out they simply say that's that's great doctor but you know we just can't afford to do that now uh but the the response to that is we can't afford not to uh because look at what look at what it's costing us now absolutely again there is no price we can put on a healthier happier society um, and as you mentioned, we are bearing huge social and economic costs as a result of widening inequality, um, both widening social and economic inequality, but certainly also widening health inequality. Huge, huge economic costs that we are bearing as a society. Doctor, is there a web page? Uh, is there a web page people can go to to see the report? Um, sure. The best place they can go is the Canadian Medical Association Association Journal website, um, okay. which I believe is cmaj.ca. Excellent. Uh, great work. Congratulations to you and, and, and all your co-workers on this for putting this report together. I hope it falls on the desk of every elected official in Ontario for the next little while and they digest this and, and are motivated by this. Uh, but it's work like yours that's going to get this thing done, Doctor. Thank you so much for the time today, too. Thank you so much. Take care. Dr. Faraz Hajid Shadidi, uh, of course, uh, from the University of Toronto. And you should check out that page. And, and again, this is not news. This is not new stuff. I mean, we've known about this for the longest time. And when we look at some of the societal problems and financial problems we're facing right now, you've got to understand that until you address this, those things aren't going to get solved. That's only common sense. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.